And I think what's been new um, in, in the COVID moment is that we've seen the Chinese move much more aggressively um, into this similar space, kind of launching this barrage of either conspiracy theories or misleading information from known Chinese outlet that are often buttressed by Chinese officials. And it's it's a difficult space that the platforms find themselves in. How, what do you do with that? Do you label them? Um, do you not give access to, let's say, Chinese officials to their platforms at all because plat these platforms are blocked in China? Um, but I think these are all kind of policy questions that are coming up now um, in a way that we haven't seen before. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, the Chinese have gotten much more into this game now. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 9th, 2020. Today, we're bringing you another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation. Here at Lawfare, we're still busy self-isolating as the pandemic goes on, so we thought we'd try something different. Instead of my co-hosts Alina Polyakova and Kate Klonick playing their usual role in interviewing a guest, we're going to turn it around and put the two of them in the guest chair, with me interviewing them. They both have expertise to share that can clarify the confusing current moment. Alina has been running a great series of virtual events at the Center for European Policy Analysis on disinformation and geopolitics during COVID-19, which I'd encourage listeners to check out. And Kate's research on platform governance can help shed light on the aggressive role some tech platforms have been playing in moderating content online during the pandemic. It's the Lawfare Podcast. Kate Klonick and Alina Polyakova on pandemics, platform governance, and geopolitics. So this week, we're doing something a little different, turning around and putting Alina and Kate, who are usually hosting in the guest chair. Our thinking was basically there's so much going on right now with COVID-19, how that's shaking up the information space, platform governance, even geopolitics, that it would be really great to just kind of sit down and get everyone's thoughts. So Alina, I wanted to start off with you. You wrote something really interesting on Twitter the other day, basically saying that we're in what you called a vulnerable moment, that we're, we're in a space where everyone's concerned about public health, but we should also be prepared for a pummeling of political warfare attacks, cyber attacks, data leaks, disinformation campaigns. So tell me more about what you mean by that. What makes us vulnerable right now? Um, thanks, Quinta. I mean, we've always been vulnerable, I would say, to what some in the defense national security sector call the below threshold space, right? These sort of gray zone operations that we hear on the Arbiters of Truth often referred to as disinformation campaigns. There's a whole slew of these kinds of operations that you know, state actors, especially, but not just state actors, like to launch during moments of chaos and crisis. And of course, we are um, in an unprecedented crisis moment right now uh, at a global scale. And this, of course, presents the perfect fertile uh, soil for uh, countries like Russia and China to try to undermine cohesion and integrity of the democratic space. And that's basically exactly what we've been seeing uh, when it comes to at least the information operations space, 
Um, but also we've seen some reporting, including from the United States government, on uh, cyber attacks against our government health agencies as well, which is when I posted that tweet. It was in response to news um, that uh, there had been a cyber breach of uh, health data and a cyber attack. So that's what I meant by that. And I think we're seeing some really new tactics uh, being deployed, um, certainly by the Chinese. And I don't mean new in terms of what they actually are, but new for the Chinese uh, when it comes to info ops now as well. So, so Kay, from your perspective as someone who studies platform governance, what's your perspective on that? Is now a particularly vulnerable time for the online information space? And how are platforms responding? Yeah, I agree with Alina. This is been, this is always, the platforms are always vulnerable. If anything, I think that to a certain extent, maybe there's something to be said for the fact that people are recognizing, the platforms are recognizing how important they are in this moment and the the space that they fill for people to stay connected, that there is more emphasis than ever on kind of making sure that they're going to get this right. One of the things that I think we are going to see is definitely concerted mis- and disinformation campaigns, specifically as we head into ele- the election season. And we, Ben Wittes and I had Alex Stamos and Nate Persley, both of Stanford. Um, Nate is at Stanford Law School, and Alex runs the Stanford Internet Observatory and does a ton of great research on mis- and disinformation. He's been on the show before with me and Evelyn. And I loved that he, it was like dark, but I loved that he put it this way. Alex said something to the effect of, the U.S. elections are uh, the World Cup of mis- and disinformation. So basically this idea that there is going to be a, um, of all of the, th- the elections and all of the things to mess with, the U.S. elections are definitely uh, highest on the list. So that being said, Right now, we're having a really weird moment for content moderation. And by that, I mean that the platforms have mostly had to send home their armies of human content moderators because they can't work at the call centers they typically work in to review information. Um, And so they've sent home um, most of the people except for um, like kind of a skeleton crew that looks at specific uh, three kind of specific areas, um, self-harm, terrorism and uh, COVID-19 related uh, content that's flagged and everything else is basically um, being automated with review or not being reviewed at all. And um, it's a just it's a very it's a very crazy time in terms of whether or not they're going to you know, this is a giant beta test for them to test how great their automated systems are and if people really notice a difference. And so I think that the concern around people who are concerned about free speech and mis- and disinformation is that this experiment possibly goes well for the platforms and there is no huge difference in quality or people's unhappiness with with what's going on. And they end up never returning to kind of meaningful human review that we've been kind of people who are involved in this stuff have been clamoring for for years. So let's dig into the specific kinds of disinformation and responses that we've been seeing. Alina, you've been holding these great events at your think tank, SIPA, about Russia's role in all this and how Russia has responded and the role that uh, disinformation plays in that response. So can you just tell us a little bit about that? Sure. But if I could, I do want to pick up on something that Kate just said about how the platforms have been responding. And I think 
if there is、um, a silver lining in the current crisis, is that all of the efforts that the platforms were putting in and gearing up ahead of the U.S.、Uh, 2020 elections. Uh, to ensure that we don't have another 2016 nightmare scenario、uh, when it comes to the information space,、um, and some of the research that、um, Kate referenced, that Alex is doing at Stanford,、uh, that others like、uh, Ben Nima, who we had on the podcast, is doing now with Graphica, and there's been this real、uh, sort of growth of researchers looking to expose. You know, CIB as it's now called, co-、uh, coordinated inauthentic behavior, impersonation accounts, all of that kind of stuff, and that's become, I think, a quite valuable relationship between the platforms and these research groups that function、uh, to kind of alert each other、uh, when they are picking up these kinds of activities online. So I think we're seeing, to a large extent, in this crisis, the Work that the platforms have put in, and the the research has has advanced so far over the last you know four years or so, and I think that's been a really positive thing to see.、Um, and I also think, in terms of how platforms are seemingly cooperating and coordinating with governments, that I think that also has moved on to a new phase now that has been much more cooperative than we initially saw in 2016. So I think it's always useful to compare where we are today. Um, than when we were、um, during the 2016 nightmare scenario, and I think we're in a much better place. But I think the bigger issue that I am seeing now, and this goes to your Russia question,、um, is that as the companies have gotten better on、uh, the CIB front,、uh, they still don't really know how to deal with overt, you know, disinformation and propaganda, and how to really understand the difference between the two. So. You know, for example, when you have an official Chinese source, an official Russian source, or a known, say, Russian state-sponsored media entity、uh, putting out not false information but conspiracy theories, for example, about the origin of the virus、um, that are just you know out there and that domestic citizens at home. Um, are also sharing and retweeting and going on Facebook to look for these kinds of conspiracy theories. They really haven't figured out how to deal with these, you know, overt versus covert、um, operations. And we're seeing much more of that now. I think because the Russian machine has certainly always done that. And I think what's been new、um, in in the COVID moment is that we've seen the Chinese move much more aggressively. Um, into this similar space, kind of launching this barrage of either conspiracy theories or misleading information from known Chinese outlet that are often buttressed by Chinese officials, and it's it's a difficult space that the platforms find themselves in. How, what do you do with that? Do you label them?、Um, do you not give access to, let's say? Chinese officials to their platforms at all because plat- these platforms are blocked in China.、Um, but I think these are all kind of policy questions that are coming up now、um, in a way that we haven't seen before. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that you know the Chinese have gotten much more into this game now of、uh, using the Russian playbook、uh, to try to obfuscate the truth and confuse、uh, reality. Kate, did you want to follow up on that? 
it's not related to where um, Alina ended up going, but she said this one thing that just kind of reminded me generally. She said about like the nightmare scenario. It's not the nightmare scenario we saw coming out of 2016, which was something that as um, I think Quinta, like we had talked earlier today that like, you were like, how are you? And I was like, well, you know, I exhausted at 930 and went to bed and then woke up at 2am and like stared at my ceiling having like horrible visions of the future. And I was like, God, 2020 is the worst year. I can't wait for 2020 to be over. And then I'm like, I have said that for four years. And I don't even think it's just related. Um, I don't even think that it's just related to the presidency. It's just been like, I'm I'm kind of like wondering like which like at what level can we go? What will we I don't want to even ask. I shouldn't ask, but like what the next level is going to be at which things just go completely haywire. It's just it's been it's been a haul. That's all I'm gonna I was like gonna what's, say. What's the next level of hell? Like where are we? <laughs> yeah, we're like just working through the rings right now, I feel like. <laughs> yeah. I mean we're we're finding out how many ways things can go wrong, right? <laughs> Um, as we kind of said, you know, maybe the silver lining is we we get this kind of road test of platforms and of the relationships between governments and platforms before the election, right? Yeah, I mean, the silver lining here, as like Nate personally pointed out on our on our show the other day, which I think he's completely right, is like, well, holy cow! At least this is happening. We have like all we need is more time. All we need is more time, and at least this is happening in the primaries and not happening in not happening in the general. At least we have time to beta test all of the different ways for this to go wrong and to figure out like all of the, and to debate all of the issues and come to conclusions. I do think that that's actually a silver lining. This would be worse for democracy. Like it's pretty bad right now, but it would be way worse if this was happening in August or September um, for sure. Alina, you mentioned that China is kind of using Russia's playbook in a sense. They're they're taking similar tactics and the kinds of information they're putting out there. Like just walk us through what specifically uh both China and Russia have been doing. And then Kate, I'll turn to you and ask sort of how the platforms have been responding to that. Yeah, well I think it's in some ways it's um too early to tell uh what are the lessons learned um yet because we're still in the middle of this. But I think certainly you know, the Russians haven't been doing anything particularly new. I mean, they've had this uh, playbook for a while and they just keep kind of hammering at it. And that involves a combination of, you know, they're externally facing state-sponsored media um, that operates in multiple languages like RT, Sputnik, and various spinoffs of that that tries to target younger generations. And we know that these are state-sponsored media and they're still constantly putting out sort of information about how, uh, the West is not responding well, that there's chaos in the West. Um, they're very keen to highlight some of the really horrid scenes that were coming out of Italy and the kinds of uh, lack of preparedness we saw um, in some Western European countries, Italy being the first one that was most hardest hit, obviously. And you just saw that kind of meta-narrative from the Russian side that democracies are not capable of managing these crises. It's really the authoritarian states like Russia and like China, because the Russian narrative on China has been very positive, you know, that are better prepared to really manage crisis situations like this, to be stable, to be uh, efficient managers, so to say, which, by the way, uh, comports very, very nicely with how 
uh, Putin's image has been crafted over the many years he's been in power. Like it's very common um, to hear Putin referred to not as a great uh, leader, not as a great ideologue in Russia, but as an efficient manager, right? This is kind of the appeal of Putin is that he is that pillar of stability in a world of chaos and things might be really crappy in Russia, which they are, uh, but at least there's Putin who's our pillar. And I think we haven't seen this uh, model of the sort of firehose of falsehood model as some of our RAND colleagues um, have called it really change from the Russian side. What's new, I think, and again, this is um, early days to really see if uh, it sticks, is I think for the first time we have seen the Chinese use that uh, firehose of falsehood playbook. You know, previously, uh, obviously, we've known that uh, China has a wide and efficient ability to block information that's on borders. Uh, the Chinese have also been involved in information operations when it comes to Taiwan and trying to undermine democratic processes there, um, also in Hong Kong around the protests. So it's not that the Chinese have not been involved in externally facing you know, propaganda disinformation campaigns, but they've certainly kept it to their own region. And there was always a big question in the community of those of us tracking kind of state-sponsored info ops, uh, when was that point going to come for China, that they were going to uh, really uh, kind of shift gears and target uh, their abilities and capabilities uh, and, and to cover a broader swath, particularly to target Europe, the United States and other democracies. And this is really the moment that we've seen that. So I think what's been interesting to observe is how much better the Chinese are at this than the Russians. And what I mean by that is they're able to usher in a whole lot of other resources to support their messaging campaigns. So they have obviously their embassies and, and certain ambassadors, especially in Europe, who have been uh, also underlining how ineffective and efficient the democratic response has been. Um, then they famously and well-known manner have been sending all kinds of so-called aid. Not all of it has been aid. A lot of it was actually bought uh, by European countries. Uh, and they're able to do this at a mass scale. And they're really trying to change the perception of themselves um, on the world stage as not the country where this started and where the uh, fumbled response initially probably greatly exacerbated the spread of the COVID uh, virus initially. Um, in the cover-up at the local level in Wuhan. And now they're trying to position themselves as the responsible global actor that is providing uh, support and aid to countries in a time of need. And of course, that's the role that the United States has traditionally filled when it comes to these big global crises, and most recently the Ebola crisis, um, an outbreak that happened in 2014. And now China is trying to position itself and it's ushering in and deploying all of these tactics and strategies in the effort uh, to paint this image of itself and to basically try to uh, push blame away from itself uh, for any responsibility related to the spread of this virus. One of the, the things that I found really interesting, he's moved away from this a little bit, but a Chinese official, uh, Zhao Lijian, who works in the foreign ministry, who was really aggressively spreading 
this idea that the virus was somehow, you know, created by the United States as some kind of dastardly U.S. campaign. He sort of stopped doing that now. I don't know if anyone really knows what his decision was there, but I found interesting that while he was spreading this message on Twitter, there was a lot of outrage from people on Twitter essentially saying, you know, this is disinformation. Why are you letting him say these things and not, you know, flag it in any way? And Kate, that gets to what I wanted to ask you, which is how are how are platforms sort of positioning themselves in this crisis? Because in a weird way, they've ended up as part of this kind of geopolitical contest, right? That there are these there's messaging coming from Russia, coming from China, sort of trying to say, you know, we're better at countering the virus in the United States. And you end up with, as you've written, Facebook and Twitter and other platforms sort of as, you know, what you call the new governors, like in the middle here. So how are they navigating that role? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I was actually, I was actually lucky enough to, um, Facebook held a small and actually, it was really so wonderful. They put a bunch of stakeholders together from civil society groups, reporters, like generally people who write about this stuff and want to know, and did like an hour-long call about a week ago about how they were specifically handling COVID and how it like overlaid how they have a general policy, what their policy is for their general community standards against misinformation and harm, and then how they're interpreting those policies in light of COVID, which if you've like ever done any type of legal interpretation, that's all it is. It's like, okay, here's a new factual scenario. What does this old old rule mean? And how what are we going to take it to mean? And so this was like this was great. It was like basically someone walking us through um, the what this means and what was fascinating about it. Um, and I have written about specifically um, not misinformation and disinformation, but kind of because I've written about defamation and um, political figures posting things on Twitter and public figures posting things on Facebook and things like that and how they deal with that kind of takedown and balance that against concepts like newsworthiness is that basically um, what you have right now, I think is a fascinating, you might find this, I'm curious if this is like new to Alina, but like in terms of misinformation and harm, their general approach has always been we that they remove misinformation that contributes to the risk of imminent violence or physical harm. That is like a very, uh, let's say a high standard to meet for misinformation and uh, in general. But in light of COVID, they have specifically said that they're consulting with WHO, CDC, and other health authorities to assess claims that may be false and likely to cause physical harm, such as increasing the likelihood that people contract or spread COVID-19, and that they're going to remove false information about cures, about prevention, about discouraging treatment, about the access or availability of services or infrastructure, and about the location or severity of the outbreak. And that part is actually pretty key, the location or severity of the outbreak, because that gets a little bit into like what Alina was talking about. Almost more interestingly to me was that as they were explaining this, they were like, well, you know, this means that like if Elon Musk says that like the COVID-19 response is totally overblown and that people are freaking out for no reason, that we basically we would take down a post like that because it would be about the severity of the outbreak and that would be false information. And I asked directly, I was like, okay, well, 
Elon Musk is not a political figure. And the problem that Facebook and other places have traditionally had is between distinguishing between public figures and political figures, which is a distinction that matters in First Amendment law. But like we can understand how the line blurs and it has blurred um, in First Amendment law, too. And basically, they said, no, we'll take down, we're going to take down political figures that state misinformation about the outbreak under our guidelines that we're getting from these objective sources. That's a huge, I think that's a huge deal because that is completely different than other types of times that they have refused to take down information from Donald Trump or others that is violating of their hate speech standards or other types of things under the guise that, hey, they're political figures and this is newsworthy speech. Clearly here, they're making deciding to make a different calculation when it comes to world health and public health. And I think that that's great. And they specifically gave the, the example of... Um, taking down the speech of the Brazilian President Bolsonaro that was claiming that uh, the outbreak was not nearly as severe as people were making it out to be and it was all a hoax, uh, He that they, they specifically censored him. They removed that content and instances of that content on the, on the, on the platform. So that seems great to me, at least for now. I mean, it's it's a limited amount of censorship specifically re- related to COVID-19 and misinformation and harm. I mean, as with anything, the thing that it makes you realize is that like in the time of like exigency, we give all of these powers to to government or to different things. And we say, OK, we trust you to just administer this responsibly. We've always done that with We've never had a choice about that with Facebook or any of these other sites. It'll be interesting if we can claw it back. Yeah. And I think one of the other things that's been interesting, too, is, as you say, the platforms have really scaled up their aggressiveness. And I I mean, I was shocked when I saw that they had taken down that video of uh, Jerry Bolsonaro, the Brazilian president, because it was just so aggressive. And there are also examples of, you know, uh, Rudy Giuliani tweeted something about an untested treatment for COVID that was also removed. There's just a really sort of willingness to jump into the fray that is is striking, frankly. Um, but Alina, I also wanted to sort of jump across the pond a little bit to Europe because you we were talking earlier about how the European Union has been in discussions with platforms about how they should be responding and how they can help the EU respond to COVID. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, obviously, I haven't been in those conversations because as often happens in the kind of communication that happens between industry and governments, you know, civil society and researchers are not usually included in that. But uh, what we know, at least uh, from uh, kind of tweeting by uh, EU officials and also um, just in conversations with friends and colleagues at the companies, um, is that uh, I think it was uh, about two weeks ago, there was a uh, set of conversations that happened uh, between uh, executives from the major companies um, and uh, the vice president level or above the European Commission um, about how the companies have been responding. Of course, the companies are supposed to be and are voluntarily submitting these progress reports um, to the EU, which was part of this uh, voluntary code of conduct um, that the EU developed uh, over the last few years. And so there has been that kind of engagement there already uh, from the companies, but it seems that that has, in this moment of crisis, 
that process that was there initially has been resulting in a better uh, working relationship between industry and at least uh, the European Commission, which of course has been on track before the COVID crisis began to really push on a much more expansive set of regulatory measures um, against social media companies. The so-called Digital Digital Services Act um, is something that's been discussed for quite some time. We still don't really know what's uh, supposed to be in it. um, And we haven't seen the commission put much out um, except a couple of uh, white papers um, and strategy papers that were much more focused on more emerging tech and AI issues than they were on disinformation issues. And so it's really unclear now uh, with the the crisis really sucking up everybody's energy, um, of course, uh, where we're going to end up uh, and where the European Union will end up um, in its desire to to regulate the companies and the tech sector more broadly. And I think the same can be said of the UK. You know, prior to this crisis, the UK had just released in February an update to their so-called online harms paper. This was a white paper that uh, the British government had put out for public comment uh, that basically outlined quite a restrictive uh, response to moderating content online um, and outlined a operational process you know, for which agency in the UK government would be responsible for being the regulator of social media companies going forward. And this was all done under the idea that uh, companies, social media companies in particular, have um, a duty, a duty of care to be responsible for the content that they publish, which is, of course, the opposite of what we have in the United States, where um, Section 230 basically says companies do not have responsibilities, social media platforms do not have responsibility for the content that is generated by users on the platforms. And so that we were about to be set up in this uh, sort of uh, battle of regulatory frameworks, and then we have the COVID crisis hit. And so now I, I would think, though I can't say for sure, but I would think from the company's perspective, this is also an opportunity for them to show that they can do a lot on a voluntary basis, that perhaps um, the EU should rethink its um, assertive regulatory uh, posture and maybe the UK as well. Um, And we'll see where this ends up. But I think right now it's very much up in the air and we were expecting to see uh, a new regulatory framework coming from, from Europe on social media companies. And it's really unclear how that's going to happen. And it's possible the companies now are getting some brownie points that may benefit them in the longer term. Yeah, Kay, I love your thoughts on that. I mean, one of the things I found interesting is that we sort of went from this period where everyone was very upset with the tech platforms all the time. And now, you know, people are still upset, as I mentioned, with the Twitter's refusal to take down Jolly John's tweets. But it's kind of turned into a little bit of a love fest, right, in in terms of how much the platforms are doing to regulate, take things down, that kind of thing. Um, do you have any thoughts about what direction the sort of European collaboration regulation might go? Yeah, I mean, I think I said... this was weeks and weeks ago, but I think I said something on Twitter, like, is it possibly the case that like a worldwide virus will be the thing that like kills the tech lash? It takes like something like something like that to like finally sink it. But I think that there's, I think that that's maybe possibly right. Listen, I think that there's a couple of heroes, if there are heroes, like coming out of 
besides the individual heroes and the people on the front lines of this, um, at like an institutional level, I think there are a couple of heroes. And one of them is state and local governments. And the other is private private corporations kind of trying to step up and they have their own motivations. So you can't completely like forget that. But like what hasn't been the hero, I think pretty much everyone can agree on um, at this point is the federal government, at least in the U S and I don't know how much that's true in other places because I haven't been following it as closely. But what's interesting to me is that this is indeed like kind of a moment for um, private companies to, Obviously, it, it does a couple of things. One, it's kind of ended the idea of like of online speech exceptionalism. Like, and when I say that, I mean the idea that we treat online speech differently from how we're going to treat everyday speech. If everyone is just talking ninety like online, and ninety percent of their ta- their speech, full stop, period, all the time to everyone, is going to be through platforms, then we can finally see how essential these platforms are and that like that there's not that big a difference between speaking in the public square, the physical public square, and speaking in some of these other types of places. Still figuring that out is difficult, but I do think that this kind of is one of the reasons that people are suddenly realizing that they're really grateful for these platforms, whereas I do think that there has been, for better or worse, even though there's a ton of like legitimate criticism of them, a little bit of entitlement around the ease and ability to speak to each other that these platforms have given us. There's this great Louis C.K. sketch that he did on Conan years ago that was basically like talking about how he was flying in an airplane and he's sitting next to this guy and they're at 10,000 feet and the guy opens his like laptop and he starts typing and he's on like Wi-Fi and he's like working for an hour and it's like Louis C.K. is just kind of like watching this amazing thing happen of like there's all of that this person is using the internet 10,000 feet in the air flying in a metal tube across the country and then all of a sudden the wi-fi goes out and the guy next to him who's been on his computer just flips out it's just like oh my god i can't believe this this is such bullshit like blah 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 And Louis C.K. kind of has this amazing moment of like how quickly we feel entitled to things, how quickly we forget that like the miracle of flight is happening and we're flying through the air in this giant metal tube simultaneously connected to everyone in the world with the internet and like everything is great and nobody's happy. And I'm not saying that everything's great right now, but I am saying that like I kind of do feel like this is the moment where the rest of the world went out and the only thing that stayed on was the Wi-Fi. And we're pretty glad that like the Wi-Fi is still working. And I think that that's like, I think that that's kind of one of the reasons the tech lash is like finally maybe um, ending um, and that we're having a kind of more holistic vision of what it is that these private companies provide to us. I've definitely felt like I have complained so much about my Twitter usage, you know, and made jokes about how I'm addicted to it and that kind of thing. But it is actually amazing to be able to, you know, get on Twitter and watch people tell about what's happening to them in a way that just wouldn't have been available before. But Alina, I think this gets to questions also about, you know, the availability of a free internet, right? Um, And you've written, um, you've done all this great work on digital authoritarianism in Russia and China. I mean, 
There have been plenty of reports about censorship on the Chinese internet of the government trying to tamp down on stories of the devastation in in certain areas in certain cities like Wuhan. Has there been anything like that in Russia? Is there kind of a a free exchange of information about COVID, or is there are there concerns about censorship there too? Well, this is a great question because it's also been fascinating to watch in this crisis moment how Russia is really different than China, right? Uh, when it comes to the government's ability to control information, I hosted a virtual conversation uh, recently with correspondents uh, for various papers. Uh, based in Moscow to talk to them about what is really going on on the ground. And it's one of the interesting things um, that they mentioned was, you know, one, there's been this huge question as to why are Russia's numbers so low when it comes to reported cases of COVID infections. And initially they were very low. I mean, it was like a, a handful as the epicenter was exploding in, in Italy. And of course, Russia sharing a border with China, this was a huge surprise. So there's a lot of speculation about there being a cover-up and manipulation of statistics. Um, we of course have seen the numbers go up, but they're still very low. Last I checked, there are around 7,000 reported infection cases, which is you know, compared to where we're staying in the U.S., is is quite shocking, actually, for a country that's Russia's size. And so there's been a lot of questions as to, you know, is there a massive cover-up going? What's really going on? Uh, but the reality, I think, is that's a combination of all kinds of things. Why it's the incompetence of the government um, in actually being able to roll out a proper national program of tests. It's also their desire probably not to test too many people. Um, because they don't want to report those statistics, coupled with, I think, a general Russian attitude, um, kind of cultural attitude that like, this is no big deal. You know, we're Russians, we live in Siberia, why do we care? Combined also with the kind of reality that at least early in January, there was a spike in reported pneumonia cases of about 40% in official statistics. There's a lot of speculation about why this was the case and whether it was really censorship or some form of censorship at play. And of course, just um, recently, the New York Times reported uh, that a Russian doctor uh, who was criticizing the government for what she saw as underreporting or misreporting of COVID infection statistics um, was arrested. Um, and so we've seen all kinds of strange measures like this. And then Putin has been you know, messaging in strange ways. He's told Russians to go take a, ba- a paid vacation. So he refuses to call it you know, social isolation or quarantine or anything of that sort. But what's so interesting that I didn't know until I had this conversation with uh, the colleagues in Moscow is that even before at least the Moscow government, which has recently moved much more aggressively towards a restricted social isolation regime like we've seen everywhere else, even before that happened, Russians themselves um, understood what was happening and started on their own, voluntarily follow the guidelines that we were seeing the CDC and the WHO put out. And so that signals that obviously they're getting information from other sources that's not the government and that they believe that information more so than what they what, than what the government may be telling them at the time. And I thought that was just so fascinating because it just immediately exposes um, how there is this widespread distrust at least in the urban centers, um, and I would say cynicism 
about uh, the Kremlin's ability to manage crises. So even though we sometimes, I think, talk about Russia as a place where the government has this complete control um, of society, of politics, and they kind of shuffle the numbers and people are buying into uh, propaganda because most media is state controlled, the reality is quite different. We see that there is a still open information space and the Russians are getting information from social media, which they can still easily access um, in, in Russia. And then they're believing that information uh, more so than they're believing what their government says. And I think the situation is drastically different um, in China. So I think, again, um, this moment is really revealing sort of the um, uh, limitations, to put it lightly, um, of, of the Kremlin and, and its um, authoritarian uh, capacities and capabilities. As we're running out of time, I wanted to ask both of you for your thoughts on whether the sort of new relationships we're seeing between platforms and governments in terms of combating disinformation right now, whether you think that's something that's going to stay post-COVID, or is this a case where we sort of, everyone scrambles in an emergency situation, and then it all kind of goes back to something like normal? Like, do you, do you think this will last? Um, so Kate, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, um, this is a great question to close out. Thank you for having me. Um, and this was really fun to kind of not be asking the questions, but answering them for a change. Um, okay, so I think that when this was all starting, uh, and the economy was tanking. I remember saying to a few people, like my family and my partner, I was just kind of like, "Yes, but then we're all going to come out of this quarantine, and it's going to be like the it's going to be like VE or VJ day. Like there's going to be this moment in which everything surges back, and like people have babies, and people want to buy stuff and go out to eat, and they're so desperate." As I actually watch the psychological reactions, I have to like reframe my hypothesis, um, which is that like, if you see what's coming with what's happening with Wuhan, you see what's happening as people come out of these types of moments of quarantine, it is much less going to be this like sharp demarcation of like we are in or out of quarantine. And there's going to be like continued, I think, paranoia and concern over the virus coming back in some other capacity or whatever. So like, I have no idea how long the some of the ramifications of this are going to last. I don't think anyone knows. And even if it goes away by like, let's say if it's like there's two months of no new cases in the world, like ideally, I don't even know if we can get there, but let's say we can get there by September and October. Then we go right back into like flu and other types of problems all over again in November and December. And so that kind of is something that concerns me. Um, but I am optimistic. And what I'm trying to do, I will say like, to end this on an optimistic note, is like I am lucky enough to still have a salary and I still try to put my money out into the world. And I try to like give huge tips uh, right now to people that are handing me my groceries through my car window and people who are, you know, doing the day-to-day -day at like my pharmacy, people I would never tip before. I think that basically, I know that we haven't been talking about the economy in particular, but I think that that's one of the few ways if you can't be a health worker, if you can't do like anything else, I do think that like, and you are getting paid that I think that that's actually a pretty great way to try to keep things going. Yeah. Alina, do you want to close us out? Yeah. I mean, I was going to mention this earlier, but 
Um, one thing I also learned from the Russia discussion is that there have not been toilet paper shortages in Moscow. Um, oh. like, <laughs> yeah, surprisingly, like there have been, of course, um, in many American cities. So uh, in some ways, I sort of wonder if countries of the former Soviet space, because people there have had the experience of much you know, more uh, horrific downturns and rations and empty shelves as, as recent as the 1990s, um, they're actually kind of better prepared, um, not because they have an effective authoritarian strongman leader but because they don't, but because they're just more mentally prepared to be able to fare through these kinds of things because that memory of uh, hardship is still so fresh. So um, I wonder to what extent you know, this is really a wake-up call to many generations now in Western societies who've never had to experience, um, you know, crisis, a crisis moment like this. You know, there hasn't been uh, a massive, you know, global war on our soil. Obviously, we've had a share of quite tragic and horrific terrorist attacks, right? But there hasn't been kind of a sustained crisis where everyone in the United States or across Europe and other Western democracies has had to deal with things like toilet paper shortages, for example, to say the very least, but other kinds of, um, you know, having less. Um, And I think what Kate said about um, the effects this is having in the economy is really profound because uh, at least from everything we're seeing now, um, it seems like those effects will stay for quite some time as businesses um, shrink their labor force. It's really unclear when that confidence will come back not just to consumers, but also to producers and companies. And, you know, I think we're in this, this is a pivotal moment, I think, for the future of our societies in so many different ways. And I think the trajectory of the digital domain will be one of those uh, profound changes and restructuring is, un- and we don't know what direction it'll go in. But I think in, in all of these other ways, um, this is so unique. Um, and so different. And I don't think we're going to be able to go back to normal, even if we really want to. All right. On that note, thanks to both of you so much for coming on. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another one next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer this week was Ian Enright, and our producer is Jen Patya Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use, and thanks for listening.